Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Paul Bunch, a pediatrician in the greater Cincinnati area, and I'm your host today. I'm in the studio with Cincinnati Children's Pediatric Urologist, Dr. Bob DeFore, for a discussion about kidney stones. Uh, welcome, Dr. DeFore. Thanks Thank for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, to get started, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your training, your background, special interest in, the, in medicine outside of the hospital? Great. Yes. Thank you. Um, so I have been at Cincinnati Children's about 22 years now. I came for my fellowship with Dr. Sheldon and then stayed uh, on staff. And so I have truly been blessed to work in an amazing institution. Uh, I come to work every day and, and, and love who I work with. I love my team. I love the, the, um, the nurses and my faculty colleagues and and um, other physicians that I work with at the hospital. It's been a tremendously wonderful experience for me to, to work here. I am originally from Kentucky, um, so I'm, of course, a huge Kentucky basketball fan. And my wife, Kathy, is a pediatrician over in northern Kentucky at St. Elizabeth's uh, Hospital. Um, we have three children, um, only one of whom is still at home in high school. The others are older. And then we have a 110-pound Great Dane who is uh, – she's fairly crazy but keeps us very busy. So – it sounds like you got a lot going on both <laughs> yeah. at work and at home. So yeah. thank you for making the time for us today. Thank you. Uh, so today's topic is kidney stones or nephrolithiasis. Um, this seems to be a increasing problem that we're seeing in the community. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how often we see kidney stones and in what types of kids, what types of situations we're seeing them? Yeah, absolutely. So when I started here 20-something years ago, it was kind of rare to see a, a child with a kidney stone, you know, maybe once a week, maybe a couple times a month, uh, as opposed to the adult world where they're very common, you know, maybe one in 10 people will have a kidney stone in their lifetime. And, you know, maybe one out of 100 hospitalizations will be related to a kidney stone. In children, it was much less, particularly when I first started. And what we sort of noticed over the next 10, 15 years or so is that that number just was just rising and rising. And we didn't really know for sure why, but instead of seeing like one patient a week, we were seeing several a week. And, and now to the point where we see maybe one or two a day. And it's just really increased significantly <clears throat> as a public health burden, um, as, um, as a clinical issue. And, you know, about half of the patients are sort of adolescents. You know, it's sort of equally divided um, um, boys and girls. And sometimes it's just sort of one and done. They, they have a kidney stone. And, and then about the other half of the time, we have patients that are recurrent stone formers. And so they just come back over and over and over again. And then we also have a very complex patient population here at Cincinnati Children's of uh, children with special needs who are non-ambulatory, who are fed via um, feeding tubes, gastrostomies, and they tend to be what we call stone factories. They just make stones over and over and over again. So we have sort of distinct populations, and we've really been working hard from a research standpoint with our nephrology colleagues to try to figure out what are the risk factors, why do some kids just keep forming stones, and then what can we do to prevent that? So with that big increase over your career, is there any data to tell us why that's happening more commonly or any theories that yeah, are out there? Yeah, so lots of theories, nothing really proven. You know, it's perhaps diet, perhaps it's, um, 
you know, rising obesity. We, we really don't know for sure. Um, there's a lot of theories. Um, we do know that a very high salt diet um, and uh, can increase uh, the risk of kidney stones. The body to get rid of the sodium um, in savory foods has to kind of excrete calcium into the kidneys, uh, into the urinary uh, system. And those um, salts can precipitate and clump together and form stones. Most of the kidney stones in children are calcium based as opposed to adults where some are formed from other kind of crystals. But in children, they're almost exclusively calcium. Okay. And other than diet, are there any other common factors, any other risk factors that you see both in those, you know, one and done typical kids, as well as those more medically complex kids? Yeah. So really, um, we know the far and away, the biggest risk factor is dehydration. So, so, so children who are sort of chronically dehydrated, um, some of your athletic, you know, adolescents who um, don't drink enough, you know, can become dehydrated. And that's when sort of the salts begin to precipitate out of the urine, kind of like stirring sugar into cold tea. They just kind of fall out of solution uh, in the urinary tract and clump together. And once they kind of get big enough, they kind of wobble off the walls of the kidney, internal lining of the kidney, and then they come down and that's when you're in the ER. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, in pediatrics, when you're taking care of the child, you often feel like you're taking care of the whole family. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're seeing a kid with a kidney stone, you know, I feel like every time that's on the list, the parents start talking about their history, mm-hmm. you know, how they had a stone, how grandma had a stone. Uh, what role does family history play in risk of kidney stones? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, and it does tend to run in families. We Our nephrologists do send genetic testing on almost every patient with a kidney stone. Even after the first stone, we do a full metabolic workup to figure out what's going on, what risk factors, are they dietary, are they, um, you know, volume-related, um, intake, dehydration, is it medication, or is, or is it genetics or family history? But we often see um, <clears throat> that they run in families, and that's a very common scenario, yes. Okay. And I think later we're going to talk about, you know, trying to get collect a stone, sending it for analysis. Mm-hmm. Does, when you get that analysis back, does the type of stone lead you down different pathways as far as suspecting causes? Yeah. And as opposed to adults, we don't tend to have as many stone analysis uh, data uh, for children, you know, um, and and they're almost always calcium oxalate stones. Sometimes um, with your sort of chronic um, complex medically child or someone who's had a lot of urinary tract infections who has sort of complex urinary tract anatomy, they'll have different type of stones, more infection related stones. We call those struvite. Um, and then some of our um, cerebral palsy children who make stones over and over again who have bladder dysfunction or UTIs will also make calcium phosphate stones. So sometimes having the stone analysis is very helpful, but most of the time we just assume, you know, especially in the one and done kind of kind of scenario that it's calcium based. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Dr. DeFore, are there any medications that uh, patients might be taking for other conditions that can increase their risk factor for kidney stones? That's a great question. And the one far and away is a medicine called topiramate or Topamax, which is used very commonly for seizures and also headaches and other indications. Um, Our neurology colleagues are very cognizant of this, um, but Topamax um, will cause uh, a relative metabolic acidosis, will cause um, low citrate levels in the urine and citrate like citric acid, like lemonade um, is um, a stone risk um, uh, inhibitor. So, um, you know, a lot of our patients, we actually put on lemonade um, if they can't drink a lot of water because that will increase the citrate level uh, and help uh, prevent stone recurrence. But Topamax um, will really lower the citrate level and cause um, stones to form. So, 
let's talk about in our office what type of um, presentations should make us more suspicious for a stone? Yeah, so the classic sort of renal colic is sort of severe flank pain. You know, it's kind of high in the upper back, you know, uh, sort of lateralizing. It's not subtle. It's like I've had a stone. It's like somebody grabbing you with a vice clamp. It's extremely painful. And it can typically cause you to be nauseated and, and vomit and, and, and be, <clears throat> you know, just feel terrible. And as the stone moves down the ureter towards the bladder, this, the pain pattern changes to where it moves sort of to the front and to the lower quadrant on the same side. And as the stone gets right at the bladder, it'll kind of cause the bladder to spasm. And so the patient will feel like they have to pee like every five, 10 minutes and not much comes out. So they're just, they're going in and feeling like they have to go and they're straining. And then 10 minutes later, I got to go again. And then once the stone is in the bladder, you're kind of home free. So if it gets to that point, you pee it out and you're good. Okay. Yeah. Is there a time course? Like, is this pain happening like abrupt onset happens? Mm -hmm. They're seeing you that day or the next day, or is this more something yeah. that tends to happen over the course of a week? No, it's usually pretty abrupt. Once it obstructs the ureter, um, it's, it's pretty intense pain. It causes sort of the renal capsule to stretch and then that causes tremendous pain. And I tell parents all the time, especially if they have asymptomatic stones up in the kidney that are not obstructing, it's hard to predict. You know, they could come down when you're out camping in the woods or you're driving down I-75 to spring break or you're at grandma's house for Thanksgiving. It just, it's very unpredictable. And so we don't really know what causes it to eventually kind of wobble off the wall and break free and come down into the ureter. But that's very hard to predict. Yeah. But the pain usually comes on pretty quickly. Yes. Okay. Are there any other clinical situations that might mimic something else that actually is a stone? Are there common yes. yeah, confusing absolutely. factors? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes we'll have a patient come in with right lower quadrant pain, for example, and then they get worked up for appendicitis and then they do an ultrasound or a CAT scan and they say, oh, well, there's, you know, sort of hydronephrosis on that side, or there's a dilated ureter or um, the appendix looks normal and let's do a CAT scan and they do a CAT scan and they see the stone. So that's a fairly common scenario. If it's a sort of a known stone former, um, you know, then it's a little easier to kind of figure out, obviously, when they come in the next time. But when it's a brand new presentation, sometimes it takes a little bit of sorting out. Now, if they have blood in their urine that's visible or, you know, there's strong family history of stones and the mom's like, well, this is kind of what happens to me, then it's usually a little easier to figure out. Okay. And yeah. when, we're, when we're seeing this kid in the office, uh, are there any key exam findings that might really hone us in on a stone? Well, I would say, you know, obviously they're going to be tender over their flank. Their CVA tenderness is going to be, um, they shouldn't be sort of peritoneal signs. So if they, they have like right lower quadrant pain, they shouldn't, they shouldn't sort of have rebound tenderness and peritoneal signs, that, that sort of thing. And then, you know, if you are, um, you know, the general exam should be pretty unremarkable, you know, from that standpoint. And then I'm assuming, you know, most pediatricians will dip their urine in the office and, and you'll probably see microscopic blood. That, that's usually sort of kind of going to clue you into um, that it's a urinary tract, you know, um, sort of etiology of sorts. Okay. So, yeah. And not asking for specific numbers, but as far as like general sensitivity and specificity of blood in the urine. You know, something yeah. that I think we all think about, that it has to be there, or it's yeah. going to be there with a stone. Yeah. I mean, how often do you see it? How often do you, is it not there even when there is a stone? It's typically there. So I would say if you do a urinalysis in your office and it's like, you know, three plus blood, you know, and I don't know how often, you know, you would, you would have the opportunity to do microscopy, but, but if you send it maybe to the lab and they, they send it back to you and there's like 50 red cells, then that's probably pretty, pretty clearly that something's going on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So if we have a patient in our office, we're suspicious that this probably is a kidney stone. What sort of red flags are there that might escalate the situation or might, you know, make us more worried and need to get you involved sooner? Yeah, great question. So typically our sort of indications for escalating care would be sort of intractable pain, intractable nausea, you know, sort of ill appearing, uh, maybe a patient who has other complex medical needs, you know, and situations where you would worry about uh, a, a concomitant urinary tract infection, you know, if they have fever, you know, obviously um, anything that would sort of send your spider sense tingling that there's something, you know, this child is sick. And while we're on that subject, you know, if you have, let's say you have an adolescent female who's had some urinary tract infections in the past, and she comes in with obstructing stone and she has a fever, that's kind of like a very urgent situation because you can get septic pretty quickly if you have an obstruction and a, a coexistent infection. Okay. Um, so if we have our patient, you know, there are no red flags. This is a very typical stone presentation. Um, family agrees that that's probably what's going on. Uh, what are the first things we should do? What, yeah. what kind of things can we start in the office? Yeah, and great question. So we, we would, you know, hydrate as well as we can. Obviously, that's going to be difficult if they're nauseated. Um, maybe some nausea medicine, you know, might kind of take that off a little bit. Um, we typically use um, medication called alpha blockers. Flomax is uh, tamsulosin is sort of the typical one. That's It's sort of used um, very widely for this indication. Um, I tell parents of um, little girls and, and, and teenage girls that um, you're going to get a weird look from the pharmacist because it's designed for us old men with prostate issues, but basically what Flomax does is sort of helps relax the pelvic floor, relax the smooth muscle around the ureter, and, and that's called medical expulsive therapy. And so it's very helpful and has prevented a lot of children from having to have surgery. And um, what it does, it helps expel the stones. And so we, um, we typically would start any patient that is exhibiting signs of renal colic on Flomax and try to manage them as an outpatient initially. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned fluids, obviously going to be a mainstay of the treatment. Do mm -hmm. you set any sort of fluid goals for these kids? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, as much as they can take in typically, you know, there's some data that maybe they should drink, you know, half their body weight and, you know, in ounces. So like an 80-pound kid should drink 40 ounces a day. But I tell parents that's difficult because there's all kinds of insensible losses, as you know. And so basically, if your urine is clear, you're drinking enough. So and that's, that's more also just chronic management and not just sort of in the acute setting. But in for chronic management, just while we're on that subject, really, they need to be drinking enough to where their urine is clear. And so in the acute setting, sometimes that's hard to do because they're dehydrated, they're not feeling well, um, you know, maybe they're sick on their stomach, they may not take in enough. And that's kind of sometimes when we have to escalate things. So if the pediatrician seeing the patient, seeing physical exam signs of volume depletion, you know, dehydration, then you might want to consider, you know, intravenous fluid therapy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then for the Tamsulosin, um, I believe that comes as a capsule, right? Mm -hmm. So as far as dosing, we're mm -hmm. sort of stuck with fixed dose amounts. Is there, you know, an age by which, you know, the doses that are available is too much? Like how, how do we dose that? And yeah. can, if kids can't swallow pills, can it be opened? That kind of thing. Yeah, great question. So the, it really only comes in one dose, 0 0.4 milligrams. And we kind of use that across the board, whether they're four or they're you know, 20. And so there's, it's really a very safe medication. It's very um, super selective to the receptors at the base of the bladder. So it doesn't really cause a lot of side effects. It doesn't interact with other medications. 
for children who cannot um, swallow pills, it's a capsule and it can be opened up and sprinkled into applesauce or yogurt or whatever. The only problem is you cannot put it into a gastrostomy tube. We've learned the hard way that it plugs up G-tubes and then that's a big problem. Um, and a lot of families that have children with G-tubes, they're very savvy about how to get medicines through those, you know, those tubes and slurry and lots of water. But but in particular, Flomax is not great for, for G-tubes. Okay. Yeah. And then outpatient pain control. Do uh, you have any go-to medicines? Do you Is it better for ibuprofen and mm -hmm. Tylenol, uh, naproxen? Kind of what's your go-to on the outpatient side? Yeah, de definitely ibuprofen. So we, we try our best to manage these pain, these patients' pain effectively with non-narcotic analgesics over the counter. And surprisingly, I mean, I see kidney stone patients all day, every day. And, you know, my narcotic use is maybe one prescription a month. You know, we get those sort of reports from the, uh, from the state. And, and we really just don't need to use narcotics. They don't, they don't typically need it. And it's not what they were under treating pain. It's just they, they don't really need it. It's not as effective. And so we're very proactive with over-the-counter pain medicine. And I'll alternate ibuprofen and Tylenol every three hours. But again, I tell the parents, if, we, if, if he's miserable or she's miserable and you just can't get them settled, then we can always escalate that. And we can use you know um, narcotics if we need to. But we almost never have to, actually. And as far as you know, success without patient treatment, you mm -hmm. know, ballpark, you know, what percentage of kids do you think we can manage successfully without sending them to the ED in your yeah. experience? Yeah, that's a great question. So it, it kind of depends on the size of the stone. And you, you may not know that in, unless you, you, know, you image them. And, and if you're just dealing with typical renal colic, um, and we might talk about imaging a little bit later, but, but if, if you have a recurrent stone former, they have typical symptoms, and they're not really ill, then we may not even image them. We might just assume it's uh, you know a stone coming down and treat them empirically. But if you know the size of the stone, that's very helpful from a prognosis standpoint. And we've done a lot of research here on that. And so if it's about three and a half to four millimeters or less in like a teenager, then they have a great chance or better chance of passing that spontaneously. Sort of in adults, that number floats up to like five to six millimeters. But my, you know, my all-time record's about 11 millimeters and, and like a 10-year-old. And so and I think it's off, often depends on the orientation of the stone, whether it's kind of long and spindly or it's kind of round and jagged. You know, they come in all sort of shapes and sizes. And so, um, but yeah, it's um, prognosis-wise, it kind of depends on the size of the stone. Yeah. And, you know, parents sometimes get really focused on getting the stone, catching it, you know, straining the urine. Um, how much emphasis do you guys put on that? And do you have any suggestions on techniques if yeah. the parents want to collect a stone and yeah, get so it analyzed? If the nice thing is the ER has little strainers and we have them in our clinic. Um, it might not be something that's easy for pediatricians to stock in their in their offices. But um, so what what I usually say if you don't have a strainer is just kind of check in, in, in the toilet. And, and if you see like a little grain of sand down in there, you know, just put some gloves on or whatever you feel comfortable doing. Just grab it and put it in a baggie for us. It's not... It's not like any other specimen. It's not going to go bad. So you just you can kind of bring it in next time, you know, that you you come see us. But um, but yeah, it's great to have it. Um, again, in kids, we don't often have the stone analysis. I'd say probably less than a quarter of our patients have a stone analysis. So okay. And then yeah. you touched on imaging. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of imaging would you suggest that we start with? Well, the sort of the mainstay is a renal and bladder ultrasound. It's you know no ionizing radiation. It's usually ubiquitous in most institutions. We're very blessed that Cincinnati Children's have 24-7 ultrasound, you know, in, in the in emergency department setting for all of our genitourinary needs, you know, testicular torsion and stones and whatever. But 
but yeah, I'd say if the patient, especially if it's sort of a, um, a new diagnosis and you're trying to kind of, you're, you're, maybe you suspect it's a stone, maybe they've, you know, um, have a family history, maybe they're, they're peeing blood, um, you know, sending them for an outpatient ultrasound, you know, and then, um, and what I usually, if I get a priority link call from a pediatrician that says, hey, we sent the patient in for an ultrasound as an outpatient, I'll just say, hey, just have them hang out in radiology until we get the results, and then we can decide what the disposition is going to be. But yeah, ultrasound is usually um, the mainstay. Um, a lot of uh, um, adult urologists will get KUBs, like a plain abdominal radiograph. And the problem with children is a lot of the stones don't show up. They're not bright enough to show up on a, on a plain radiograph. And so you also won't get other information that an ultrasound would provide, like obstruction, any other anatomical abnormalities, whether they have two kidneys, because that really plays, you know, sometimes you walk around and you don't even know you have one kidney and, and then you obstruct that and you really want to know that information. So the ultrasound is super helpful. There's some caveats to ultrasound. It's not, it's, it's, it has a lot of advantages. It tells you if there's an obstruction, it kind of tells you the sort of the anatomy. It, it, there's a very high false positive rate for little tiny stones up in the kidney. And so a lot of our recurrent stone formers who are being managed, you know, with serial imaging, um, I think a lot of times our radiologists, um, the, the, the imaging is so um, sensitive. It picks up little spots that they call um, and if you read the report, it'll say an echogenic focus, which just means a white spot on the ultrasound, or they'll say twinkle artifact. So you might be looking at this report in your office going, what do I do with this? It oh, says yeah, there's there. twinkle artifact. What does that mean? And so basically um, what that means is the, the beam from the ultrasound will pass through something in the kidney and throw a little shadow that has a little twinkle. And if you actually look at the pictures, it looks like Joseph and the Technicolor Dream Code. There's like a little streak of different colors and they call that a twinkle. And that could be a stone or it could be just part of the kidney. And so it's hard to be 100% sure. And sometimes I've had a CAT scan and an ultrasound on the same day and the ultrasound said, oh, there's multiple stones. And then the CAT scan says there's just one stone. And so the CAT scan is sort of the far and away the most precise diagnostic modality. The problem is it's a lot of radiation. And so I've had, I had a teenage girl who had six CAT scans in one three or four month period. And I told the mother, I was like, the next time you go into a community emergency room and they say, oh, okay, we're gonna do a CAT scan. It's okay to push back on that and tell the provider, can we do an ultrasound or can we call urology and see what they wanna do? Because like I said, we don't always need to get imaging. And ultrasounds in community hospitals are not as prevalent or you know available, and sometimes they have to call a tech in, and they live 40 minutes away. And so there's sometimes a lot of push to just throw them on the scanner and get a CAT scan. But I, every patient that comes to me with a kidney stone gets the same sort of um, um, sort of speech about that. Is try to this could be a lifelong problem. We don't want your child getting CAT scan after CAT scan after CAT scan. So it's great information. It's extremely helpful sometimes. And we get CAT scans, not infrequently for various reasons. But um, your first line imaging should be ultrasound. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, of course, as primary care docs, we want to manage as much as we can on an outpatient basis, avoid the ED and inpatient when possible. But there's mm -hmm. going to be times where we have to send our patients in. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the things 
some of the indications for sending a kid to the ED, what might even get them admitted, and what's yeah. going to happen there that we can't do on an outpatient basis? I would say if you think they need IV fluids, you know, for volume volume uh, depletion, or if you think there's some sepsis event brewing, then certainly that should be escalated to the emergency department. And fever's going to be the <clears throat> Yeah, fever would be a that. huge trigger for that. So kidney stone plus fever is typically something we need to see uh, right away. And then... If the patient's not too miserable, you know, we could always see them that day or the next day in, in, our, in, in the urology clinic. And we have um, a really cool phone number. I don't know if you've we've gotten to that part yet. It's uh, 513-803-ROCK, R-O-C-K. Nice. So <laughs> we ha- that's manned uh, 24-7. And so if you have a patient with a kidney stone and during the day, um, then that goes to our um, uh, kidney stone um center um, nurse coordinator, Renee. And if it's after hours, that goes through priority link to the doctor on call. But we're always available. We'll see um, patients with kidney stones the same day or, you know, if they're not too sick, maybe the next day in clinic if uh, whatever works best for the family. So, And if medical therapy isn't enough, you know, fluids, mm-hmm. pain control, nausea, nausea control, if we're just not helping the kid or this is becoming a recurrent or persistent issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some some other treatment options that you can offer as a, as a urologist? Well, if they have failed sort of outpatient treatment, they're still miserable, they're vomiting, they're getting dehydrated, and we brought them into the emergency department and they've gotten fluids, they're still vomiting, they've gotten narcotics and then another round of narcotics and they're just not keeping things down, then we would admit them um, to our service. And usually we would just... Um, maximize the hydration, give them, you know, alpha blocker, we would give them Toradol, you know, to help with the renal colic, excuse me, except for if we think they're dehydrated. Okay. And I've had two situations in 20 years where a patient went to an emergency room, got a shot of Toradol, was sent home, uh, came back the same day to the ER, got another shot of Toradol, and then they had acute kidney injury and they didn't void a drop of urine for 24 hours and their creatinine really spiked. So we're really... I personally am very cautious with Toradol if a patient's dehydrated. But if they're in the hospital getting lots of fluids um, and they're, you know, getting volume repleted, um, we'll give Toradol and Flomax. We usually will keep them NPO after midnight. And so if they're still having symptoms the next morning, we'll talk to the family about going to surgery. Okay. Yeah. And, and what would that look like? What kind of surgery, surgical interventions? Would yeah. You do? So in the a very acute setting, like a patient needs urgent intervention, you know, for an obstructing stone, then we would place what's called a ureteral stent. And that's sort of minimally invasive. They're under anesthesia. We go in through the bladder with a tiny little telescope called, called cystoscopy. And then we place a, a little tiny straw uh, called a stent. Um, over a wire and we when we take the wire out the stent has memory on either end so it kind of curls and locks in place and so that sort of allows the kidney to drain around the stone and then um, we will um, let things settle down you know if the patient has an infection clear the infection and then take the patient back maybe in a week or two for definitive um, stone surgery okay so the stent is not actually to get to help the stone pass it's to help the urine to drain past the stone correct okay didn't know that and it also depends on sometimes if the stone's in the ureter when you go back in and pull the stent out the stone will kind of tumble with it okay. um, but we'll still kind of take a look just to make sure there's no other stones or anything on little fragments up there and then we have um, all the tools that we need to treat the stone we have lasers we have little jackhammers we have little baskets you know whatever the stone is and where it is and what size it is we can kind of 
And we have ultrasonic lithotripsy that, that breaks it up with sound waves and sucks the fragments all at the same time. So we have all the little, little tools that we need to kind of break up whatever stones we find. Very interesting. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to prevention. Let's say either for the one and done kid, who, you know, you're not suspecting this is going to be a chronic thing, but are there things that you tell those patients in the future you need to always do this? Or if we do have a recurrent stone former, what type of things are available to help prevent stones? Yeah. So in addition to the speech about um, CAT scans, they get two other little mini speeches. One is hydration. And so we kind of mentioned that before. They need to drink enough to where they... Um, their urine is clear. So they need notes for school. They need water bottles. You know, they need permission slips to go to the bathroom as needed because if you drink more, you pee more. And, you know, uh, all of our patients get notes to be able to go to the bathroom ad lib anyway, you know. And so, um, so that's the second speech. And then the third speech is about diet. And so I tell parents, we're going to do a full metabolic workup. Um, and it's actually very convenient. They do um, a 24-hour urine collection at home. The lab sends everything to their house. Federal Express comes and picks it up the next day. We They do run hundreds of tests on the 24-hour sample, and we get lots of great information, genetic, diet, um, hydration, you know, salts, and metabolism. Um, but I tell the parents, don't make any big changes to your diet before we do that metabolic evaluation. But um, I would be very knowledgeable, and I just kind of educate them about the sodium sort of relation with, with calcium excretion. So... So it's not the dietary calcium. So don't limit the, the milk and cheese and, and all that. It's the sodium in the diet. And so just be mindful. And so, you know, and start reading labels. Be aware of how much sodium you're taking in because it's in everything. It's in soups. It's in canned foods. It's in processed foods, fast foods, you know, everything. And if, you're, if their teenagers are like my teenagers, everything they want to eat is salty and, and chips and out of a bag. So just to be mindful and be aware of that, I think, goes a long way. Um, and if you've ever had a patient that's uh, on a low sodium diet, it's extremely challenging. I mean, to, to stay low on the salt. So it's very difficult to do that. So it's easier for me to say than do. Um, I had one patient who kept forming stones and I asked the mother, I said, what does he do after school? I mean, what does, what does he do? And she's like, oh, he works at, um, Chipotle. I was like, oh really? What does he do there? <laughs> And she said, oh, he's the bagger for the chips. <laughs> so, and he had the highest urine sodium I've ever seen in my career. And I was like, well, I think we figured out why he keeps forming stones, because he's probably partaking of the chips mm -hmm. while he's bagging them. But anyway, uh, but just kind of being aware of those sort of simple things. And so sort of the, the CAT scan, the diet, and the hydration are sort of general talks we give to all of our stone formers. And then we get more detailed information um, with the metabolic evaluation. And then um, we'll involve nephrology if they need pharmacotherapy, if they need a special, special diet, or if there's a genetic issue. There's some genetic disorders that are very prone to forming stones. And that's where we really need our nephrology colleagues to kind of uh, help manage those patients. Wonderful. Um, well, I appreciate all that information. Is there any last tips or advice you'd give to a primary care physician with a patient with a stone? Yeah, I, I would just say having sort of um, an increased um, sort of index of suspicion, you know, if a patient's having abdominal pain that's lateralizing to the kidney, maybe has microscopic hematuria, maybe mom has a lot of stones, you know, just kind of thinking of that diagnosis, because, you know, if they trained 25 years ago, they may not have ever seen a stone in their training. And so, um, so just kind of awareness that 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 this sort of 
you know, sort of disease process is increasing, you know, considerably in children. And also just to know that we're here, you know, we're always available, Priority Link, um, if you have questions, if you want us to see a patient right away, um, if you want to refer a patient, you know, through our um, nurse coordinator, um, you know, we have that number, 803-ROCK. Um, and uh, Dr. Devarajan, actually nephrology, that was his, uh, that was his idea. So we, we give him full, full credit for that. But yeah, I would say being aware of the situation and knowing that we're here and available and that we have um, pretty much every tool to treat stones. We, we almost never have to refer patients out um, uh, with stones and we'll see kids up to 21 with stones. And so, you know, if you have your college student coming home for the holidays and they're having problems, let us know and we'll see them. Great. Well, okay. thank you for your time today, Dr. DeFore. I really appreciate all your time and expertise. Uh, just as a reminder to our listeners, today's episode was guided by the community practice support tool that's available on cincinnatichildrens.org under provider resources. Also, today's episode is available for CME credit. You can find the link for that in the show notes. And thank you so much. I hope you guys have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much.